Thank you, Pastor Jason. Good morning, everybody. Good to have you here this morning. And for those of you that are watching online, thank you for participating with us. I'm, my name is Dean. I'm one of the pastors here at Community Church of Greenwood. It's my privilege and my pleasure to introduce this new series, The Journey to the Cross. And over the next six weeks, we are going to be looking at uh, two of the most and heading toward two of the most important world and life-changing events ever. That is the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ and His glorious, joyous, victorious resurrection. And all of that to help give us the hope of Jesus, which is our sermon series for the year, as Pastor Jason just mentioned. Today's message is entitled, Jesus' Journey into Jerusalem. And if you have your Bibles, your apps, your devices, turn, if you would, to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. A little bit of background as we dig into the Word this morning. This is the final week of Jesus' earthly ministry. He has declared three times that he was going to Jerusalem and he was going to be crucified. And now he begins the ending of that earthly journey of his by this triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And we normally celebrate that on Palm Sunday. And while Jesus had often and most times had not wanted a big demonstration during his earthly ministry, drawing attention to it for the wrong reasons, this was a demonstration geared toward bringing many, many people into view of who he was, a very public demonstration. So many followers are coming with Jesus into Jerusalem. They're coming from Galilee and the surrounding areas. And certainly his chosen 12 are going to be with him, right? And then some of the other disciples who have been working with Jesus and ministering with him over the course of the three years. But there will be others that are coming in, most likely his mother Mary coming in with him and probably close friends Mary, Martha, Lazarus, Lazarus whom we have just raised from the dead uh, weeks previous, and many of the people that saw that miracle may be coming in with Jesus during this time. And Mary Magdalene would be coming in maybe uh, from his recent trip into Jericho, uh, it would be Zacchaeus, whom, the tax collector whom Jesus had forgiven, and the two blind men whom Jesus had healed. Uh, maybe the woman from the well and some of those Samaritan people in her village that Jesus impacted just a short while earlier. Maybe the woman caught in adultery might have been a part of this that Jesus had forgiven. Maybe the man healed from demon possession. Maybe Jairus and his daughter whom Jesus raised from the dead and their family. And maybe the paralytic whom his friends brought and let down through the roof for Jesus to heal, and the friends saw that miracle. They may have been a part of this entourage coming in, along with many others. And of course, they're coming in to Jerusalem during Passover, and estimates that there could have been up to, upwards to two million people coming into Jerusalem during Passover time. So with that background, let's look at Matthew chapter 21, beginning at verse 1 through verse 13. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming, humble 
and mounted on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. And they brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. And most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred. And they were stirred and saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Father, prepare our hearts to grow in your word today and guide us on this journey to the cross in the weeks ahead and be reminded of and recommitted to our Lord Jesus Christ who was crucified for sin and raised from the dead to conquer death and the grave. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. It's been said that a journey of a thousand miles begins with what? The first step. The first steps. Well, let's take that first step on the journey to the road to the cross in this next six weeks. You and I can better begin our journey to the cross, I believe, as we look today by recognizing three ways that Jesus was in control. He demonstrated his total control over life and life situations, all of them, as he demonstrated it in his triumphal entry coming into Jerusalem. Now, life uh, seems at times to be out of control, doesn't it? And we look at world events, we look at family concerns, we look at personal problems, maybe mentally, relationally, physically, financially, spiritually, and we wonder, is there any control that can be brought to all of this? And when we look at this passage today, we're going to see that Jesus was in total control. And he reminds us of that as he controlled three things as we look to this passage today. He controlled the preparations for his entry, the prophecies regarding the entry, and the presentation of himself during the entry. And he could do that because he is Lord and God. And he is eternally and truly able to do that. And he's totally good. And we can trust a God who is good and who has all things under his control. So let's take a look at that on Jesus' journey into Jerusalem. We see that he controlled, first of all, the preparations. The preparations, verse 1, and now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage to the Mount of Olives. Uh, Bethpage was near Bethany. You can see the map on here. Bethany was a, a favorite place for Jesus to go because that's where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived. And Jesus would often go there to be refreshed by his friends. Bethpage was on the way into Jerusalem from there. And importantly, they mentioned Bethphage, this little community, and it's the only time it's mentioned, but it means house of figs. You say, well, okay, Pastor Dean, what, what difference does that make? Well, it's interesting that it connects the triumphal entry with 
Jesus' cursing of the fig tree a little bit later in this chapter in verse 18. And that opened the door for Jesus to talk about prayer and faith with his disciples. Two very important topics that he needed to remind them of as soon as uh, he could because his time was running out. We see in the passage it mentions the Mount of Olives. You can see a, a, a photo of that. The Mount of Olives just outside of Jerusalem and it is a destination point for Jesus' entry. But it's also a trigger point for any of the Jewish people there to be thinking about the Old Testament and thinking about some aspects of the Mount of Olives that were a part of the Old Testament. Uh, David was fleeing for his life as his son Absalom was coming in at the Mount of Olives to lead a revolt against him. The prophet Zechariah predicted the day of the Lord would come and that the Lord would go out and fight against the nations. And on that day, his feet would stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem. So they would be understanding that with the whole aspect of the Mount of Olives coming. Then Jesus sent two disciples and we don't know who the disciples were, but they could have been Peter and John. Why? Because in Luke chapter 22, it says that Jesus sent Peter and John to go and make the Passover ready. So he may have selected them to do it. They were part of his inner circle. It said verse two, verses 2 and 3, saying to them, so Jesus tells them who are going to the village, go into the village, Bethphage, in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her, untie them, and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. So these two disciples were sent in there, and they were told to do this, bring this colt and this donkey back with you. And if anyone says anything, just say, the Lord needs them. This is really very detailed information, isn't it? And it shows that Jesus was sovereignly orchestrating and ordaining all of these activities that are taking place, all of these events. And MacArthur says this, quote, such detailed foreknowledge reveals his divine omniscience. Verse 6, the disciples went, and I love this, and did as Jesus had directed them. And it came to pass. And the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks and he sat on them. So the disciples went and they did what Jesus had told them to do, right? And isn't that what we should be doing? What Jesus tells us to do, we go and do. And when they did exactly as Jesus said, what happened? They found it exactly the way he had laid it out. And actually in the, in the Gospels of Mark and Luke, it said there was actually interaction between the disciples and the owners of the donkey, and they said, yeah, sure, take it. Jesus had orchestrated all of that. And it just, you know what, it reminded me, there's an old saying, Jesus said it, I believe it, what? That settles it, right? That settles it, that should be enough when Jesus said something. And so we see that the Lord Jesus is able to accomplish his plans and purposes just as he says and we recognize he was in control of those preparations. Second of all, we see in this passage on Jesus' journey into Jerusalem, uh, he controlled the prophecies. He controlled the prophecies. Verse 4, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Now we remember this is Matthew writing. Matthew is a former Jewish 
tax collector who has come to follow Jesus. He's an apostle. He's writing to a primary Jewish audience, and under the direction of the Holy Spirit, he's going to cite three Old Testament prophecies in this section. He's going to do them directly. But as we look at this passage, Jesus is also going to be fulfilling two prophecies silently. Silently. We'll take a look at all of that in a second. So directly, first of all, verse 5 says, So the say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you. That's taken from Isaiah chapter 62, verse 11. And in that Old Testament passage, Isaiah reminds the Jewish people that their Messiah, their king, will be bringing salvation to all of them and making his people a holy people. Jesus is controlling all of that entry into Jerusalem and announcing one final time to the people there that he is the Messiah and the king. Matthew continues, he's coming in humble and mounted on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a beast, of burden. That's taken from Zechariah 9.9. Very clearly, Zechariah lets the Jewish people know that their Messiah, their king, is coming humbly on the colt of a donkey specifically to bring salvation to the people. And Jesus sovereignly controlled all of that so that he would arrive on that colt, one that had never been ridden before. He specifically did that to fulfill Zechariah's prophecy and bring to the minds of the religious leaders and the people exactly what he was doing. And the third direct one is seen in verse 9. It says, The crowds went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And that's taken from Psalm 118, verse 26. And the psalmist paints a picture of the Messiah coming by, in his name and in his power with authority of the Lord God to bring in everlasting mercy and enduring steadfast love. They cry out, Hosanna. It's a transliteration of the Hebrew, and it really means save now. And the people were crying that out. And Jesus, he allowed those cries to come, to reinforce the message that he was trying to bring, that he was coming to save. But he was coming to save in a way that they needed, not in the way that they expected or wanted. But it seems here that there's also two prophecies that are being fulfilled silently, meaning Matthew's not recording them. Genesis 49, verses 10 and 11, we see a prayer of Jacob, one of the patriarchs. It's concerning his son Judah. And out of the line of Judah would come the Messiah. Jesus came from the line of Judah. And was talking about a foal, a colt of a donkey. Very specific, many, many, many years earlier in Genesis. But the other one I think is fascinating is taken from Daniel chapter 9. If you have your Bibles with you or apps, go to Daniel chapter 9 for a second. And this looks like Jesus is directly fulfilling a prophecy given to Daniel regarding his prayer of the return of the Israelites back to Jerusalem after the captivity. But God is actually looking to a far 
future fulfillment of it. Verse 24. So 70 weeks, that's 70 weeks of years, that's what, 490 years, are decreed about your people and your holy city. Who are the people? That's the Israelites. The city is Jerusalem. To finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Six specific things. Some commentators believe Jesus fulfilled the first three at his first coming and will fulfill the second three at his second coming. Some believe that all six will be done at his second coming because the Israelites didn't really have fulfilled those first three. Knowing, therefore, and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem, which hadn't had it happened yet in Daniel's time, but he's getting this prophecy. To the coming of the anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks, seven weeks of years, 49 years. Then 62, it shall be built. That's 483. shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after 62 weeks, plus the seven of 69 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. You say, what in the world, Dean, is going on there? Well, the prophecy 69, there's 70 weeks, right, have been decreed, but they talk about 69 weeks. After 69 weeks, that the Messiah will be cut off. And in his book, The Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ, Harold Horner pinpoints that from the time of the decree by Artaxerxes in 444 BC to Nehemiah to go and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, Exactly 483 years to the day Jesus is entering in to Jerusalem. 483 years. You say, what happened in the last seven years? Well, that's the 70th week of Daniel, and that's the tribulation time. And if you want to know more about it, you have to come to our last revelation class next Wednesday night. You can find out more about it. So all of that transpiring in the, in the sense of Jesus controlling the prophecies. G. Campbell Morgan, great Bible scholar, says, We see how he who inspired the prophecy himself came to fulfill it. And so we recognize that Jesus was controlling the events of his entry into the city, the prophecies all regarding it. Thirdly, lastly, on Jesus' journey into Jerusalem, we see that he controlled the presentation the presentation of his arrival. And we've already seen in verse 4, Jesus arrived how? Humbly, on a donkey coming into the city. And I believe that just really shows how Jesus relates with the poor and the needy and the helpless in society. And I think it relates really well. Pastor Jason did a great job the last four weeks on that justice series, talking about the vulnerable. Jesus relates to them. He has a heart for them, and he demonstrated it by coming in. But there's more aspects of his presentation. Verse 7 says, They brought the donkey and the colt, and they laid on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. So what are they doing? The cloaks represent a submission to Jesus coming in as king. This is the crowd coming in with him from Galilee and the surrounding area. And the palm branches, John says they're palm branches, here it just says branches, but the palm branches demonstrate praise to Jesus coming in, demonstrate his expectation of victory. And so the people were 
seeing all of this take place as Jesus was coming in. And I want you to see Jesus, this is just amazing. Jesus had prearranged all of this, this triumphal entry, this presentation, to accomplish three things for sure. One, to make his final offer to the Jewish people of his Messiahship, right? Second of all, Jesus is coming in here and he is making himself visible to the Roman authorities. And they were the only ones who had the power to crucify. And Jesus was coming in to Jerusalem to be crucified. And thirdly, Jesus was coming in and presenting himself to catch the attention of and really to infuriate the Jewish religious leaders. Why? In order for them to speed up their timetable to kill him. They had wanted to do that, but they said, we'll wait until after the Passover because of the crowd. But Jesus was pushing them by doing this to react because God wanted Jesus killed and die at 3 o'clock on Friday when all the Passover lambs were being slaughtered for Passover. They had wanted to wait. In John chapter 12, it says, The Pharisees said to one another, You see, you see, what's ga- we're gaining nothing. Look, all the people are going after him. And Jesus brought this presentation to speed things up. And he would be killed at 3 o'clock on Friday. He would be nailed to the cross at 9 o'clock. The sky would grow dark at 12. And Jesus would yield up his spirit at 3 o'clock. And in doing so, he would fulfill the words of Isaiah. Isaiah said, like a lamb, he is led to the slaughter. And John the Baptist had said earlier in Jesus' ministry, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus was and would become the Lamb of God shed for us. When you think about that, that great verse in 2 Corinthians 5.21, just mark that down. What a, what a verse to keep in mind. God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Jesus, the sinless, perfect lamb, lived a perfect holy life so that he could die on that cross as the ultimate Passover lamb and bear the punishment of sin. And when we put our faith and trust in him, acknowledging we're sinners and we need a savior, and we put our faith in Jesus as that savior, his righteousness is credited to us and our sin goes upon him, the great exchange. Jesus did that for us, the great exchange. Verse 10, and when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So what was happening there? There was messianic fever. They They were excited about what's taking place at Passover. And now this... This one is coming in, and the Greek word there for uh, stirred is, we get seismic from it. This place was rocking. This place was quaking. It was shaking. And they were asking, who is this? Why? Because the Jewish people wanted to overthrow the oppression of the Romans, right? They wanted the Roman out of there. And so they were looking for a Messiah who would do that. And the crowd answered, coming in with Jesus, they said, this is Jesus of Nazareth, a prophet. 
But in doing so, it seems like they missed the fact that he was coming in as king and Messiah, not just a prophet. And then the people of the city looked out and they heard that and they began to think, well, you know what? There is no prophet that comes from Nazareth of Galilee. And so they would not accept him as their Messiah. And they were the ones who would cry out four days later to crucify Jesus. And finally, verse 12, And Jesus then entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. When Jesus began his earthly ministry, he came into the temple the first time and he overthrew the temple and drove out the money changers and he wanted to initiate his ministry and he wanted to call people to holiness. Three years later, they're back at their same practices here, desecrating the temple. And if you see the map up here, they were doing it in the court of the Gentiles. And when you think about that, they were doing all this buying and selling. They were keeping Gentiles from coming and hearing about the one true God. And Jesus, in his anger, threw them out. Warren Wiersbe had a great quote. says, it was being used for mercenary business, not missionary business. So Jesus came into Jerusalem not to overthrow the Romans, what the people wanted, but to overthrow the irreverent worship that was taking place by the religious leaders. He was doing it to show that he was ending the Jewish system of sacrifices and rules and regulations of feasts and festivals and ending their corruption. And that through his saving sacrifice would make a way for man to be made right with God. That's why he was coming. And knowing the people were failing to respond to him by faith, Jesus set his sights on going to the cross just a few days later. So we recognize that Jesus controlled the presentation of himself and set the stage for that crucifixion. So what what does that mean for us today on our journey as disciples, as disciples wanting to go deeper? What do we learn from this lesson? I think three things as we wrap up this morning. First is, I think it reminds us that we need to obey him. We need to obey him, right? says so the disciples obeyed Jesus' word and it happened just as he said. There was great peace, great assurance, great comfort when we know the word of God and we do the word of God, right? Maybe the Lord is calling you to obey, to be involved in a ministry here in church or maybe in the community. Maybe the Lord is calling you to obey and to forgive someone or to bring reconciliation to a relationship. Maybe... The Lord is calling you to take a step of obedience and have a believer's baptism. Uh, I think about my own life. Uh, I, was, I, I grew up in a, a tradition where I was baptized as an infant. And I came to know the Lord when I was about 18 years old and went about another 14 years uh, knowing the Lord, walking with Him, but uh, not having taken that step of faith. And I began to serve in ministry and in church work and I realized I had not done that. And our suburban church in the suburbs of Milwaukee partnered with an inner city Milwaukee church. We had a service in the inner city and we did a baptism and I got baptized then. And that step of obedience, I believe, helped me take my next step in the journey of my walk with the Lord. What on the journey here over the next six weeks 
uh, do you need to do as a step of obedience? Now, second of all, I think we need, as we look at this passage, to bless him. Uh, to bless him. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, right? That needs to be a part of our heart on a daily basis, corporately, on a weekly basis, right? To come together, sing the great songs that we're doing, fellowship together, hear the word. And we need to do it privately, have your quiet time where you just bless the Lord and thank him. And your family time at a meal, uh, maybe when you're uh, going and doing something as a family. Will you take some time over these next weeks on this journey to carve out some time to really bless the Lord, just like the people were doing. And thirdly, I see the need of, of trusting him. If I recognize that Jesus is in control of all of life and all of life situations, I really need to trust him, even when I don't understand all that's going on. It is so sweet, right, to trust in Jesus, how we've proved him over and over, Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more. I was thinking about that and maybe you have a concern over issues of injustice. Hopefully after the last four weeks you do. We need to trust Jesus and Jesus said blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are the merciful, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Maybe a concern over the world in conflict or our lives that are dealing with storms in life, relationships or financial stress, maybe health issues. And Jesus is the one who says, peace I give to you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives I, do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Maybe it's the loss of a loved one or your own mortality. And Jesus reminds us to trust him because he is the resurrection and the life. And maybe you're just weary and worn out from kids, from work, maybe both. Jesus said, come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. I think for me, as I think about that, I think of a four-year-old grandson and a three-week-old grandson and how I want them to come to know Christ. I want them to serve Christ, to love Christ. And Jesus said, let the little children come to me. And I trust him for that. What do you need to trust him for? We close this morning this familiar story, maybe to many of you, maybe new story to some of you. Lord Jesus was in control of those preparations, those prophecies, that presentation. He's in control of all of life and life situations. On this journey to the cross, will you let him control your life as you obey him, as you trust him, as you bless him? The hymn writer said, May the mind of Christ my Savior live in me from day to day by his love and power controlling all I do and say may that be a part of our life on this journey let's pray Father we thank you for your word this morning and we thank you Lord Jesus that you remind us that you're in control of all of life and life situations and we praise you help us as your disciples to obey you to bless you to trust you Lord, if there be anyone here this morning who needs to take that step of faith to trust you as Savior of their life, may they do so, Lord, acknowledging their need of a Savior, that you are that Savior, that you were the perfect Lamb of God on the cross. And may by faith, may they turn to you and trust you by faith. Lord, we thank you that you came humbly as a Savior, 
but you are coming again to reign as king. And so we say, amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Lord, as we prepare to partake of the Lord's table, we're reminded to examine ourselves, help us to see if there's been any place that we have not obeyed or trusted or blessed you, and we ask for forgiveness. And may we echo the words of the psalmist who said, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Please prepare our hearts to partake of the elements, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What a wonderful way to begin the journey to the cross by thinking about what the cross meant. And we do that through taking of the Lord's table. If you would take the elements, and if you've trusted Jesus as your Savior and Lord, you're welcome to participate with us in it. And as we take the bread... We're reminded that the night he was betrayed, the night before he was to be crucified, Jesus took bread, broke it, and said, this is my body for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The bread. In the same way that evening, he took the cup, and he said, this is my blood shed for you. As often as you do this, think of me. The cup. Lord, we're grateful for this time to celebrate the Lord's table as commemoration of all you did for us. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are in control. May we yield our lives to you. For we pray this all in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen.